0: Welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if anybody tells you that size doesn't matter, they're wrong. (music) Hello and welcome. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Bacon. And this is your very special cut down show where we are going to be looking at
1: a deep dive into Jurassic Park. Why, Andy? Why are we doing that? Well, we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of Jurassic Park coming out. It came out June the 9th in the US, and then it was July the 11th or something in the UK, 30 years ago. Yes, Jurassic Park is that old. And back in episode 122, we actually deep did a deep dive into Jurassic Park. So because we're having a bottle episode this week, yes. it seemed the perfect time to draw upon that. But we have got some new content because we've both seen The Flash, so we're going to be reviewing The Flash. But if you're thinking about seeing The Flash, you might need to be reminded about two other things beforehand, that being Tim Burton's Batman 1989 and Zack Snyder's Batman versus Superman and Justice League. And here we are to bring you our archive material from when we've spoken about those things. We're so good to yet we're preparing you to watch The Flash.
0: We are. Um, we're going to be talking about that a little bit later in the show. So stick around for this very special episode. But before that, well, we've just got to mention, and we normally do this in the news, but as Andy said, uh, this is a bottle episode, so no news. But we've both decided we couldn't move forward without mentioning uh, a couple of sad passings. In particular, and this will particularly sad to all you comic geeks, the very, very sad death of the great John Romita Sr. Yes, he who basically set the marvel house style inherited spider-man after steve ditko created the look the iconic look of wolverine gave us mary jane watson truly was a a a very special and influential artist
1: his work on the spider-man titles are what we consider the definitive design for spider-man you know it already had the 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 standard design from the start, but he gave it that he gave it that essence, and he was also responsible for drawing the art in quite a lot of influential stories and key moments in Spider history. And according to reports, it was Ramita who suggested to writer Jerry Conway that the character of Gwen Stacy should die at the hands of the Green Goblin leading to The Night Gwen Stacy Died in Issue 121 way back in 1973. The the impact of Gwen Stacy's death resonated throughout the title ever since and has even been reflected on screen. And it's one of the things that even if you're not a comic book reader, you know that the character of Gwen Stacy lost her life in such an impactful way. He also helped design The Punisher, Luke Cage, oh, yes, Bullseye, Brother Voodoo. I mean, this is a guy whose hands were pretty much all over everything Marvel particularly through that like 70s era. He has worked on quite a few things on DC after leaving Marvel. He had a bit of a fallout with um, Stan Lee, as as pretty much every writer does. people have a
0: tendency to do. <laughs> uh,
1: um, but he, they, he, they kind of reconciled their differences later. He brought the world such beautiful comic artwork. And also, it, it, you know, it, it, his son as well is continuing his legacy in his own unique style.
0: Uh, that's right, uh, John Rita Jr. later went on. To draw Spider-Man after his father, his style was an, an awful lot different than Steve Ditko's. Well, Steve Ditko's was a, a little bit more, slightly more surreal, more stylized. Romita brought a well, he'd worked in romance comics, and he and he made Peter Parker look like a young man of that particular era. The same with Mary Jane, he the way that he uh, uh, he changed Gwen Stacy, the look of Gwen Stacy, and uh, he. He made his characters feel real they never felt as though they were comic book characters they they lived and breathed on the page uh, he ended up becoming marvel's art director for many many years and um and was still drawing very late into life it's a sad passing it, it really is the end of an era the end of that what became the bronze age of, of comics and defined the look for so many characters as Andy said the punisher wolverine luke cage they were all down to the designs of John Ramita Senior. Uh, we pass on our best to his family and friends, and it is indeed a very, very sad
1: passing. And then the second loss that we had this week was uh, veteran actor Treat Williams, who died after being involved in a motorcycle accident near Dorset, Vermont um, at the age of 71. Now, you might not recognize the name Treat Williams off the top of your head, but you'll certainly recognize him from the films that he's been in. Treat Williams was one of those actors
0: that was in so many films and always brought his A game to. He probably covered almost every kind of genre. I think we all have a a Treat Williams favorite film. For me, Deep Rising, in which he had a, uh, he was marvelous as a sort of cocky Indiana Jones-esque type in this very silly, but highly enjoyable monster movie. He was amazing in Things to Do in Denver, When You're Dead, which I think is my favourite Treat Williams performances. But also other things. He was in The Deep End of the Ocean. He made his his screen debut in Hair. He was the villain in The Phantom. There was so much work that he's left behind. An an absolute loss and an, an absolute great screen presence.
1: He was one of the tank crew. In You know, it's something that we've deep dived all those years ago, 1941, the very much misunderstood and misaligned Spielberg comedy that we both got love for. Uh, He was also Once Upon a Time in America, Smooth Talk, Heart of Dixie. Yeah, Miss Congeniality 2, Armed and Fabulous, 127 Hours, What Happens in Vegas. He's been everywhere, and on TV, his credits are also Heartland, White Collar, Chicago Fire, Chesapeake Shores, which the wife is weirdly addicted to at the moment, and Blue Bloods, amongst others. Uh, you'll have seen him pop up, and he's, we've spoken about it in recent weeks on, you know, the, well, it was our question of the week, the, the, the kind of actors that never get the lead roles but always bring something. And they're always someone that you spot and recognise. And this is one of them.
0: Yeah, he leaves a a 50-year acting career behind him. But what an impressive CV of work and some impressive work. And again, one of those great actors, as Andy's just said, and Treat Williams will be sadly missed. And now it's time for our deep dive, our special deep dive, as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Directed by Steven Spielberg, produced by Kathleen Kennedy. The first installment of the Jurassic Park franchise it was based on the 1990 novel of the same name by Michael Crichton with a screenplay by Crichton and David Coop. The film is set on a fictional island, the Isla Nublar, located somewhere off Central America's Pacific coast near Costa Rica. A wealthy businessman, John Hammond, and a team of genetic scientists have created a wildlife park of de-extinct dinosaurs. When industrial sabotage leads to a catastrophic shutdown of the park's power and security precautions, a small group of visitors, including Hammond's own grandchildren, struggle to survive and escape the prehistoric perils. There it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park.
1: We've made living biological attractions so astounding. If they capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal
0: discovery of our time how you do becomes this? becomes the greatest
1: adventure of all time. Can
0: I touch
1: it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents You feel that? Hold on to your butts. A Steven
0: Spielberg film this is failing all over the park. Yeah, that's
1: nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! No!
0: I can't get Jurassic Park back online.
1: 65 million years in the making. Jurassic Park.
0: I, a bit like you, Andy, can't believe that this came out in 1993. I remember discussions and chats with film friends and film geeks as the film was about to land, with the idea that this could be a game changer. And boy, were we right, because this film not only changed special effects, and especially CGI special effects, but also opened up the realms of... Well, it was one of those films where you could actually say that when you saw it for the first time, you were left with your jaw wide open, because what you were seeing on screen was the unbelievable made believable. And to some extent, I think that's what the problem is with the uh, more recent films, because nothing will ever take away that feeling of when you saw dinosaurs so wonderfully realised as the characters saw them on the big screen, and it made it feel real. The best out of all the films, including Steven Spielberg's own sequel, this has every right to be called a classic.
1: Yeah. I remember when this came out and on the run-up to it coming out, when the publicity was everywhere. And it was one of those films that I thought, oh, this is going to be really popular and I want to be cool and not just like like a popular thing. And I was like, oh, I'm going to be cynically like, yeah, I'm not bothered with this film. So when I went to watch it, I was like, you're dragging me along to see Jurassic Park. Uh, who wants to see dinosaurs on screen? And literally, when Sam Neill as Alan first spies a dinosaur and, like, takes his glasses off and, like, is, like, looking in amazement, I was doing exactly the same in the cinema. It's because I could believe that whole that whole stunned aspect that he had of he seeing dinosaurs in front of him for the first time. I felt the same way in the audience, and I was in from that yes. point. Even now, you can re-watch this film, and the effects still look really jaw-dropping but getting to see them on the big screen they've lost some impact on the small screen on the big screen if you ever get a chance to see the first jurassic park and get that it's that way that it slowly builds up until you get the first brontos come into view yeah and it's the fact that you've been building and building whereas now a jurassic park film will throw it throw out a dinosaur within the first five minutes all that we saw in the first few minutes was the crate with something in it, and you don't get to see the detail. It's such a good film where all the elements seem to be right. You've got Spielberg really at the top of his blockbuster game. This is something that he, yeah, he, he started off with Jaws. He set what the summertime 10 pole movie would be, and he'd done many other blockbusters, but this is possibly the one that he gets every element really put into place. The casting. Can we talk about this cast?
0: Yeah, what a cast. What an absolute cast.
1: The fact that there's so much buzz around the new film purely on the back of most of this cast coming back shows how effective they all were. I mean Sam Neill, as I've already said, he he really brings you along into the film as the paleontologist Alan Grant whose love for dinosaurs you can see clearly he's always a great actor anyway, but this is one of my favorite roles because he just feels so real. Laura Dern is fun. She's, she's giddy with excitement, but she also does the panic quite beautifully. And then you've got the magnificence of Jeff Goldblum. Let's be honest, that guy can be added to anything and make yeah, it. I mean, this was Goldblum better.
0: at the top of his game. You know, this is when he'd, he'd gone and developed from being a great supporting actor to a leading man you know he did that with the fly and here he just just brings absolute class to to, to the entire movie not to forget you know uh, to some extent spielberg's cinematic grandfather sir richard <laughs> and let's yeah. not forget bob peck bob yeah. peck was a was a brilliant british character actor always known for me for edge of darkness which is one of the greatest british tv shows ever but bob peck just brought just brought class to a role which anybody else, it might have been a, a throwaway role, a victim role, but he just brought so much to it. Uh, this was a, a fabulous film. Like like yourself, when I saw The Brontos for the very first time, I was caught up in it. It has every element of, of pure Spielberg uh, magic, which is not to let the special effects overwhelm the story, to keep that sense of wonder. To see it through different eyes—the eyes of of Alan Grant uh, and uh, the Ellie Sattler character played by Laura Dern, as well as as, as Goldblum's eyes, but through the kid's eyes as well—that that, that yeah. amazement. There's a real sense of peril in the same way that he brought a sense of peril to Jaws. This is the last great for me Spielberg super blockbuster.
1: The Beloved. Richard Attenborough, playing the role of Hammond, who was supposed to be, according to Michael Crichton, a dark Walt Disney. He was supposed to be cynical and evil and corporate. But when you cast Richard Attenborough, you're not going to get that. You're going to get someone who everyone adores. And so they tweaked the character. I think it works so much better as a result. Because you now get the feeling that everything that he did with the creation of like bringing dinosaurs back, he was doing because he was genuinely excited about this idea of letting people see these things again and bringing things back from being extinct and miss it. And it needs then the Jeff Goldblum character to point out the failings of trying to interfere with nature. And it works so, so well as, uh, as it goes. The kids, the child actors, uh, Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards, normally kids in any film, especially an action film, they're great on you. And we spend a lot of time with these. And there's many set pieces that relies purely on their acting talents. And every one of them I was gripped with. The T-Rex attacking them in the Jeep scene is a mixture of mostly practical effects with some, some CGI tinkering around the edges. And it's just beautifully, beautifully paced. And every threat that they get, you feel that Ariana Richards in particular is genuinely scared. I'm wondering whether Spielberg actually terrorized her on set in order to get this <laughs> result because uh, she she genuinely convinces. She doesn't feel like one of those fake child actors who can just do one kind of scream. She goes through every range of emotions. Everything makes it great. You've got the minor actors. When Samuel L. Jackson is a minor actor in your film, then you know that everyone else is really important. And Wayne Knight is brilliant as Dennis Nedry. We. We'd seen him on TV and things like Third Rock from the Sun. But in this, yeah, he, he just has that little, he adds some humor to it, whilst also being a, a scheming, devious, manipulative backstabber. I absolutely can go back and re-watch Jurassic Park over and over again. And it's not just for the effects, and the effects are fantastic. But it is, like you say, it's the fact that Spielberg focused on the story and the characters, and then added the effects in around it.
0: Absolutely, as I said, this film was a game changer. Uh, CGI was still kind of in its infancy, but the clever combination of what you could do at the time with CGI and Stan Winston's practical effects—that's what gave this film a sense of realism. Now, this film started out as a as a book by Michael Crichton. Uh, when the novel was published, four studios put in bids for the film rights, including Warner's for Tim Burton. Columbia Pictures uh, with Richard Donner in mind, 20th Century Fox for Joe Dante. But Universal Studios eventually acquired them for Steven Spielberg. And Steven Spielberg said he wanted to do a land-based version of his own film, Jaws. But he also cited Godzilla, King of the Monsters. That's the 1956 version that he grew up watching. And, and, And Spielberg himself described Godzilla as the most masterful of all dinosaur movies because it made him and viewers believe that it was really happening. Crichton turned in a draft of the script, but it was David Keop who took out some of the uh, more violent aspects and uh, a lot of the novel's exposition and made sort of numerous changes to the character. And I have to be honest, having read the book, I think the film is one of those rare occasions when the film is better than the book.
1: Yeah. I can't quite take to Crichton, the writer. I can't take to his novels. I've tried so many times, but I just. I, I don't know, there's something about them that just doesn't work for me. And yeah, when I read on the run-up to um, Jurassic Park coming out that this was getting made, I hadn't read Jurassic Park at that point in time, but I knew that it had similarities to Westworld. And I just thought, he can only make one story. And let's be honest, he can. But what a story it was when it translated to film. It, this is a perfect example of how you take a source material, get rid of all the things that don't work and make it solid for the film side of it. The film series continued after the first one because, of course, it did. It's a huge success. You want to make a franchise. And so we got Spielberg back for the second one. And the second film gets a lot of flack. Loads of people will dismiss it and say it's rubbish. I don't think it is. I just think it's lazy. It still has some shining moments of Spielberg brilliance, but it just feels like repetition for repetition's sake.
0: I think three quarters of it are a pretty good film. I think the, the ill advised last act with the t-rex turning up in the us yeah you could see that, that spielberg was desperate to do a godzilla movie yeah but it made absolutely no sense whatsoever uh, and there were elements that had always been hinted at for a sequel which have still to this day have never been explored yeah it's lazy there's there's some great elements of course there's the sequence in the overturned rv which is hanging above the crevice which is just brilliant film making. But it, yeah. it, it liked, and again, which each of the films have done, likes that sense of that first impression that you will always get from Jurassic Park. I, I've got more love than some for the Joe Johnston uh, Jurassic Park 3. I thought that was a clever way. And I think if you'd have uh, had Spielberg directing that one, it would have been a, a much, much stronger film. Well, not that, that Joe Johnston couldn't direct a, a good movie. Hey, I'm looking at you, Rocketeer and Captain America. For both yep. being great movies, but it felt muted, and it felt like we were running out of ideas. Even though it was great to see Sam Neill back for that for that movie, but I I think it's underrated. Then of course we get the the current trilogy, and I think that's where mm. for us the problem started, and it became. The first one was very much, let's replicate exactly what happened in the first Jurassic Park.
1: Yeah, it tapped into nostalgia with occasional like, oh, here's the helmet, camera, th- like torch thing from the first film. Oh, here's a jeep from the first film. And it relied, it seemed to rely on that to make you go, oh, it's the original Jurassic Park bits." Oh, I like that. I must like this by result. And it it's misguided in its approach and understanding of how the characters work in the original film. Because we, we, in the original film, we had the accountant tax guy uh, character who ends up getting disposed of when he tries to hide in a toilet. And that was a moment that you kind of like laugh at someone's death because he was a creepy, not, like a horrible kind of character. And everyone hates like accountants and bankers. Accountants, so, yes, you know. let's be honest. <laughs> so <laughs> Sorry it, for any accountants worked. are listening. It worked on that basis. So what did they do to try to replicate that in Jurassic World? They had the nanny had the one who was looking after the kids who was only doing her job. And not only does she get dispatched, but she gets dispatched in a way that is just like picked up, thrown into the air, grabbed by one, eaten by another. And she's like, you've made this ridiculous. And that's the way this plays out as well. You get the feeling that they're expecting that to be an audience like, oh, she's gone. <laughs> she was horrible. She wasn't. She was a nanny looking after the kids. I mean, that should have been a horrific moment, but it was played for laughs. And it's yeah. things like that that made me realise that it's this was just making a film to try to tap into nostalgia and replicate success of previous films. And the effects don't look as good as they did in the 90s because it relies no, absolutely too not. heavily on CGI. And CGI, sadly, does age pretty rapidly.
0: And then we had Fallen Kingdom, directed by <laughs> the ever-usually resourceful J.A. Biona, who delivered some fantastic visuals, some some really, really stunning shots unfortunately marred by a a sub-level script a script that didn't know where it was going or what it wanted to do became increasingly sillier as the the film went on and had very much zero tension throughout of it even though it did give an intriguing coda which the new film jurassic world dominion has picked up on but again this has this has had some shocking reviews even though it's going to do very well at the box office initially, even though I, I suggest it's going to have a, a poor second week, I think we've come to the end, really, of the Jurassic Park movies.
1: Yeah. Because nothing I, I delivers think right.
0: like that very first Spielberg movie.
1: Yep, I think you're right. Fallen Kingdom lost me after the opening section. You know, where, with the island and they're trying to get the dinosaurs off the island to save them because the volcano is going to erupt. And then you have all the stampeding dinosaurs going off the cliff edge and falling into the water and dying. And then once all the humans get off the island, they look back and one lone brontosaurus, like coming through the clouds of smoke, going, and you're supposed to feel, oh, no, that poor brontosaurus. I've just seen 400 dinosaurs die. You're not getting me to feel sympathy for this one that's left. It's not going to work. And it lost it from that point onwards. The whole film fell apart. I've not really got any interest in watching this one, and no,
0: no, neither have I.
1: I feel that I need to watch it, but I don't want to watch it. And I might, if I get, if if I have no time, if I have some spare time, and I feel like uh, I might as well kick kick back for two hours, I'll pop in and review it for one of the later shows. But if you're out there expecting us to review Dominion, neither of us are really that bothered. And, you talk, and I'm talking as a guy who watches every Sky original. Yes. That's how dedicated I am to watching films.
0: I was going to go and see it in advance. And then I was asked to do uh, a bit for radio. And it I couldn't change the, the transmission time for, for the BBC. And so I missed seeing Jurassic World 3, for want of a better term. And then I've not had much in the way of Desire really, to, to go and see it. If you go this yep. week, I might
1: go with you. Well, I'm only back for a couple of days, so um, it's unlikely because my feet are hurting. With the Jurassic franchise, I do think, I like the idea for Dominion that now dinosaurs are around the world. They're within society. And I just feel that this part of the story has come far too late. This should have been, been Jurassic Park 3, to be honest with you. Yes. This should have been done two decades ago. And failing that, this should have been Jurassic World, the first Jurassic World film. We shouldn't have taken two Jurassic World films to make it a Jurassic World. It makes no sense. All that they've managed to do is deliver us a fourth part and a fifth part that were just playing heavily on the first part and second part and third part and showing us things that we've already seen. The Jurassic franchise will never impact in the same way because we've now seen so many giant CGI creature creations stomping through like territories. trees, killing mm-hmm. animals and humans left, right, and centre, that it's no longer got that impact. You've got to do something really special to stand out. And the Jurassic franchise, sadly, it seems to now think that the effects will sell it all, but they need to get you to care about the characters. And I don't I don't care about any of the characters in the new films. I only want to see this like like the only thing which makes me want to see elements of this new one Dominion is seeing the old cast come back. But given the bait and switch of the previous film, I'm sceptical about that because we were promised on the trailers, Jeff Goldblum, and basically all that we had was the clips that we'd seen in the trailers. I don't want to be baited and switched again because Chris Pratt, yeah, I do like him as an actor, but I don't think he's doing anything except for just his generic Chris Pratt role in this film. Yeah, And Bryce Dallas Howard deserves so much better than what she's doing here.
0: Is this the end for Jurassic Park, World, whatever? Probably not because, you know, you can't keep a good dinosaur down. But if you really want to go back and see where it all started, go back and watch Jurassic Park. See it with fresh eyes. See it in all its glory, because it is a, an absolutely classic film. If you've not enjoyed anything that's come afterwards, then highly suggested that Spielberg's Jurassic Park can still instill a sense of wonder. Andy, where can we find it if we do want to watch it?
1: Now TV or Sky Movies subscribers, you can watch the Jurassic Park series on there. Watch the first three, stop there. Everyone else, go out and buy the Blu-ray box set, particularly the Blu-ray box set which only has Jurassic Parks 1, 2 and 3. Don't waste your money on the others.
0: And we'll be back again sometime soon with another deep dive. Before we give you our review of the big new release this week, The Flash, Andy's come up with a cunning plan, and that is to give you a lead-up to the latest DC movie.
1: Because, as you know, this new DC movie is bringing old and new together. So let's take a quick look back to what we thought when we did a deep dive into Tim Burton's 1989 Batman with Michael Keaton. When this came out,
0: everybody was there for it. Picture yourself back in the year 1989. Picture yourself as being one of the, well, most In your face advertising campaigns, probably ever for a movie, because that was the year of the bat symbol and Tim Burton's Batman.
1: My life is really
0: complex. I have given a name to my pain. I'm Batman. Ah! Yet yeah, the year was 1989 and everybody went back crazy as the new Warner Brothers movie was about to be released. I mean, if you weren't there at the time, trust me, you just couldn't escape as the bat symbol became a piece of that year's iconography. It was everywhere. How to sell a movie on just a logo. And trust me, Warners did. It is and probably always will be one of the most famous advertising campaigns ever a film and it stoked the fire of course this was the big screen return of Batman and everybody was talking about it produced by John Peters and Peter Gruber directed by the odd choice at the time of Tim Burton starring Jack Nicholson as the Joker Michael Keaton as Batman Bruce Wayne Kim Basinger Robert Wall Pat Hingle very briefly Billy D. Williams and Michael Goff alongside Jack Palance. The film takes place early in the character's war on crime and depicts his conflict with the Joker. It had taken many years to get Batman to the big screen. At one point, everybody was connected with doing this. Ivan Reitman, as we talked about last week, was at one point down to direct Batman. Who was going to play the Cape Crusader? What were they going to do with it? Were they going to go the campy route that we'd left off from Adam West We're going to go a different tone, uh, thematically looking at Frank Miller's Dark Knight Return or Alan Moore and Brian Boland's The Killing Joke. Where were we going to go and who was going to be the Batman? Many names were mentioned. Believe it or not, at one point, Bill Murray was in the running to be Batman. And we talk about how fans react now over social media. Can you imagine that one happening?
1: When the announcement came out of Michael Keaton, it's a good job Twitter didn't exist. Otherwise, oh, yeah. there would have been hashtag shutters, restore the Westverse uh, would have been getting thrown around left, right and centre. Because in the limited public feedback that you could get via press and magazines, had it that this film was going to be a disaster, uh, there were so many negative reports early in the production that they fa- didn't they fast track a trailer to get out very, very early just to bring people back on board and go, this is what we're going for.
0: Yeah, I mean, the public expectation of who was going to play Batman was, was huge. Well, fans' expectation, because to, in the eyes of the public, we'd only had really one massive superhero movie, and that was uh, Warner Brothers Superman, the movie. So the idea was it was going to be someone like a Mel Gibson or a Tom Selleck or a Dennis Quaid. And at one point, apparently, Pierce Brosnan had been approached to to play the comic book character. And And back in those days, You know what? People didn't want to play comic book characters. Putting on a Mm -hmm. pair of tights and a cape wasn't considered, as it is now, to be the start of your career and more like a career ender. But when Tim Burton had signed on, he suggested Michael Keaton, Mm -hmm. arguing that he had the right amount of edgy, tormented quality, having worked with him in Beetlejuice and seen his crazy side and having seen his dramatic performance in the film Clean and Sober. But, as Andy said, it was met with a lot of fan distaste. Letters were written to Warner Brothers. And until we started to see how Keaton delivered, iconically, the role of Batman, and to some extent, probably still the best interpretation, in my opinion, of The Dark Knight, then we looked as though we were going to be on edgy ground. Tim Burton was an odd choice to direct. Mm. He'd come off Pee-wee's Big Adventure. He'd come off uh, Beetlejuice. But he brought a kind of stylized craziness, very much comic book quality, gothic quality, to this particular movie. And interestingly enough, so some of the other choices I said were Ivan Reitman, people like Joe Dante. But Tim Burton won the role and made the Batman really his, his, his own. It wasn't just Batman. It was Tim Burton's Batman. What do you think, Andy? I mean... 30-odd years later, Andy, does it still have the same impact? Um, is, it still, is it still a classic, or have we moved on from it?
1: Uh, it? It holds up really well, and it can still grab new audiences, as demonstrated by the fact that my kids have watched them and enjoyed them. I'd say them, because I'm also talking about the sequel uh, that followed Batman Returns. But Keaton, when he was uh, cast, what inspired casting? It's one of them that it's not what the fans would have gone for, but it's what the fans really needed. Yeah. which sounds like a very Batmanish quote. He's not the... <laughs> <laughs> But Keaton's involvement as well also was the reason why every interpretation of Batman since does a different voice for the Batman. And that's because Keaton he calls himself a logic freak and was concerned that surely it's going to be easy to work out who the secret identity is because he sounds, looks, and acts the same way as uh, Bruce Wayne, and he's never in the same room as him. And he it was Keaton who came up with the idea to speak as Batman in a lower register than when he's portraying Bruce Wayne it's become the staple, it's yeah. become now that's how Batman is quite glad that he didn't decide to go for a higher octave because that would have been a bit weird and <laughs> <laughs> your worst nightmare <laughs>
0: <And Ben laughs> Michael Jackson as the Batman, thank you very much
1: uh, but there's, I mean, re-watching this, it's such a joy to re-watch and it's because of the design it's because of the Tim Burton aesthetics that, you know There's a lot of criticism levied at Tim Burton in recent years about how all his films look the same. But it's important to note that early on in his career, this kind of look was fresh. His gothic designs fit Gotham perfectly. Everything seems to be dark and dingy and black. The costume itself, which again, there was letter writing campaigns that they're making the costume all black with just a yellow symbol. What happened to the blue and and greys? And now every Batman costume yeah, goes the black approach,
0: and goes for the the body armor routes, and which yeah. absolutely makes perfect sense.
1: Why is the symbol bright yellow on the chest? Because uh, it draws people's fire, and that's where the heavy armor is.
0: Yeah, it, it really did. It really defined how superhero costumes are. I remember I was so excited for this, as I'd been excited for Superman. I was so excited for this. Probably at the time more so than than even Superman, because Batman was was always my character, and I was working in a. Uh, a comic book store at the time, and anything that would land, we, w- we would go crazy over it. So there was a paparazzi shot of, of the Batman, and we got to see the sort of look, you know, the elongated ears, which were very Neil Adams, and the idea of the, the Batsuit being armour. And then it appeared, the first shot, and I can still remember it, and I was in Forbidden Planet, and I saw the first shot on a, a magazine called Starlog there was Michael Keaton as the Batman stood beside the, the oh-so-impressive Batmobile. And my goodness, for these young eyes, was was that a sight to behold? The design of Gotham City, which I think every subsequent Batman has, has, has got wrong, but the design of it being this sort of almost retro-futuristic 30s is in present day, um, was the way to go. As Anton Furst, who was the production designer, said, Gotham should be hell breaking out of the, out of the pavement. It, it just hit, hit the right tone. Danny Elfman's score, it's still the Batman score for me. And the fact that it appeared in Joss Whedon's Justice League certainly gave me a thumbs up. It was, it was uh, an impressive way to go. And we'd spent so long waiting for Batman to get onto the big screen. And you can't talk about Batman without talking about Jack Nicholson's casting of the Joker, yeah. who often overshadows the title character because you've employed Jack Nicholson. So that was always going to happen. But a lot of casting choices for that. Uh, Ray Liotta was at one point mentioned after he'd come off uh, one of his first films. Tim Curry was high on the list. Interestingly, almost voiced uh, the Joker in the animated series. Willem Dafoe looked at one point to walk away with the role. But of course, being the producers, uh, who they were, they wanted a big name and they hired Jack Nicholson.
1: It was interesting because Nicholson turned it down initially. And so they offered it to Robin Williams. That's right. Yeah. Which Robin Williams signed up. He accepted the role. But then the producers decided to approach Nicholson again and told him Williams would take part if he did not. So Nicholson then felt, well, I'm not having someone else steal my thunder took the role. It then became, you got interviews with Nicholson talking about like his career. And he would always say that the Joker was one of his favorite roles that he ever played. He had so much fun in it. He delivered so much. I mean, he made 60 million making it because he took a percentage share. Yeah. So <laughs> kudos to him. As a result of this, when Williams was asked if he wanted to play the Riddler in Batman Forever, he refused because he'd been messed around early on in the Batman production. Right. That he didn't want to work for Warner Brothers Productions until the studio directly apologised to him. Would Williams have been a great Joker? No, I think he would have been a great Riddler. I think Jack Nicholson was a perfect Joker because he's always got that little edge. He's always got that menace. And the thing about Batman is as interesting as Batman is as a character, his villains are even more interesting and they need to be represented well. Nicholson was perfect piece of casting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He was he was a popular choice at the time, and he had a tendency to play as Jack Nicholson. Let's be honest. Uh, and every time he's on screen, he's uh, he's it, amazingly. He's so over the top that he's back again. But you know, as you, as you said, he he captured the insane quality that you want from the Joker, uh, and the the whole film had this sort of it adhered to, to the comic book. It had bright colors. It was it was fanciful in its uh, in its imagery. It is the most Bar Cesar Romero screen-accurate take on the Joker.
1: It it was the first time that we saw an origin story of the Joker depicted on screen. Yeah. We've said like the aesthetics all look great. You quickly mentioned the Batmobile. I want to delve a bit further into the Batmobile because, man, that was the most demanded and collectible vehicle toy of all time. I still (laughs) want a model of the Batmobile. I've got toy cars of it I've got small models but I want a huge model of the Batmobile because isn't that just a great design i I put it down as the definitive Batmobile I love the Adam West era Batmobile but the the one from the Tim Burtons movies that for me is the Batmobile
0: absolutely totally agree I mean I I love the Adam West version but and, and subsequently other Batmobiles outside of the Tim Burton one always a little bit weak, but this was impressive. This was the Batmobile. Um, I've got a lot of love for it. There are a lot of faults with Batman as a movie. The story is very slight. It's highly influenced by Steve Englehart's run on on Batman, which is a, a classic run. It makes a few changes to the Batman mythos, which even writer Sam Hamm, such as Vicky Vale being let into the Batcave by Alfred, by the Joker killing Batman's parents as opposed to Joe Chill were somewhat problematic, but I, I kind of let it go. Mm. It, it really, really redefined Batman, both in the books and, and for the rest of their films. There was no way that you could go back and, and do a different take on Batman without Tim Burton's uh, initial approach. I mean, the great thing about Batman is that it led into Batman Returns.
1: Yes. Batman Returns. I remember when Batman Returns came out, uh, me and my friends went to see it on opening day, and I, I was underwhelmed by it on that first viewing. Really? I don't know what I was expecting. I think because I you know the first film hit with such an impact and all the hype around the sequel, you know, the bat, the cat and the penguin, and it just felt, I don't know, something didn't quite gel. But it's one of those films that when, I, when it came out on home release and I rented it out, I fell in love with it again. And it's now, I now prefer Batman Returns to Batman. Yeah, me too. Because I think that the story's stronger. There's a lot more going on. I think DeVito is magnificent as a penguin. Again, the villains are more interesting than the Batman. And as for Catwoman, wow. Yeah, what a Was she played I guess, the same way that Michael Keaton played two personalities? He played Bruce Wayne, he played Batman. She plays Selena Kyle and Catwoman. And the two different aspects of personality. And we've not mentioned the music score all that much yet. You know, that that iconic theme from Batman. It's possibly Danny Elfman's finest score, but in Bat- Batman Returns, he even surpasses that with the themes around Catwoman. Yeah. All of her theme, the, the transformation of Selena Kyle is majestic with that whole orchestral score as like she's smashing her apartment or whatever. Dun, dun, dun absolutely brilliant scoring and shows how important music is for conveying emotions in a scene because you feel her trauma you feel her her rebirth through that score every time I listen to that soundtrack and this is a soundtrack that I bought when it first came out and I listen to still even today quite frequently and every time it gets to that I'm just swept up in the emotion of it that's a good score but everything on Batman Returns was right the gadget's moved ahead a bit further. You know, it's, yeah. the Batmobile had another little transformation when it turns into the, the the bullet car. Yeah. Um, you've got great performances from everyone involved and it, it's more comfortable. It's laid the foundation with the first film. It's more comfortable to just jump straight in. It's dark, it's witty. It's Tim Burton through and through.
0: This was at a time when superhero movies were, weren't were a sure thing. Yeah. Superman and Superman 2 had done very well, but the subsequent sequels had failed miserably. But when this came out in June 1989, it scored and grossed 40 to 49 million during its opening weekend. It's those kind of figures that make the film an absolute uh, a classic of its time that proved that audiences wanted to see superheroes on the big screen.
1: And taken seriously. I mean, yes, there's a, a lot of fun to be had. There's some silliness in there. But it's dark and brooding and it's, it's character drama rather than just, well, as much as I love the Adam West era, and I do love the Adam West era. Oh,
0: yeah, it was our, it was our introduction to the character.
1: They were just crazy far more than anything else. And I love them for being that. But Tim Burton's Batman showed us that you can take comic book movies seriously and was daring enough to kill off the villain in the very last shot. Yeah,
0: which many saw as a mistake, but yep, uh, it also, again, set a trend. This was an amazing time. We saw a Batman that was eerie and weird and and spectacular and dark and entertaining. And and even though Jack Nicholson's Joker overshadowed the title character, we got a great Batman in Michael Keaton. And so much so that Keaton's come back to play the part again in the uh, Batgirl movie and um, hopefully the Flash movie as well. So that's the amount of an impression that Keaton gave and still is. Despite all the other takes, I love Affleck's take on it. Uh, Christian Bale, pretty good. But it is, for me, always going to be Michael Keaton's portrayal of Batman that is my Batman.
1: And not only will you need to know that, but you might need to be up to speed on what Zack Snyder brought to it. Because this is one of his characters, given his own outing. And so, let's listen to when we spoke about not only Batman versus Superman, which first introduced this flash, but also the Justice League.
0: Let's take a quick trip down Snyder Lane and have a look at Man of Steel and BVS, or Batman vs. Superman as it's better known. I'm getting slow in
1: my old age, Alfred.
0: Even you got too old to die young. Not for lack of trying. He has the power to wipe out the entire human race.
1: If we believe there's even a 1% chance that he is our enemy, we have to take it as an absolute certainty. The greatest gladiator match in the history of the world God versus man, day versus night. You're psychotic. That is a three syllable word for any thought, too big for little minds.
0: Okay, so you've had a a chance to revisit Man of Steel and we talked about it a couple of weeks ago. So we're not going to dwell on that. The only thing that that echoes for me from watching Man of Steel again, a little bit like you, I think I enjoyed it a little bit more because I I went to see the film with a a certain amount of expectations. There are huge swathes of it, which I dislike. And I don't put that down to Snyder. I put that down to the script. And the main issue I still have with this film is that boy, the young Clark Kent, didn't grow up to be Superman because of the actions of his father. And it still, it still stumbles as a film at that point and lets it down. And, of course, the ending uh, with Zod, which has become sort of the uh, you either hate it or love it scene. There, there are other scenes in it which I absolutely love. His depiction of small-town Americana is absolutely fantastic. the The battle sequences are great visually. But they're empty, and they're empty with with just mass destruction in a way that I know tried to pay off to some degree in Batman versus Superman. But for me, it, it was um, annihilation porn.
1: Yeah. Well, on my re- revisit recently, it gained a half star extra, taking it up to a three out of five film for me. The fundamental issues still reside in there, and the fundamental issue, like what you've suggested, same with me. It's the moral core of the character as he's growing up. It's no longer this perfect hero, the the, the ultimate boy scout. He's now been raised by a farmer who told him he doesn't have to save people if he doesn't want to, which seems to be sending the wrong message. I've seen it said many times by people who don't like Superman as a character, that this is a film with Superman in that they do like. And this highlights that this isn't a classic Superman, or even the Superman of the comics, maybe the new 52 comics, but that era's gone. But it's a whole new, and for me, unnecessary edgy Superman. Superman shouldn't be edgy. Superman shouldn't be dark, depressive and morose. Superman should be the ultimate beacon of hope and that's where this film fails to touch on me. If you approach this film not as a Superman film but just as an alien on Earth film then yes, it kind of works but it's just not got the core Superman.
0: It, it, it just doesn't add up from a plot point of view to be told not to use your powers and to watch your, your father perish and to leave the family dog behind, but that's another story. <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't <laughs> add up. It, it's, it's there to make a plot point rather than to drive a story. And it's yeah. there to make Superman edgy in a way that he doesn't need to be edgy. And, and it was lazy. It was lazy storytelling. Now, I put that down to David Goyer's script more than I do uh, throw that at Zack Snyder. I think Goyer goes for the cheap shot every time in his storytelling. And in two particular occasions, that's what he did. There are some, some great visuals in it. And, and that's yeah. what Zack Snyder does best. He is a filmmaker with, who's a great, great visualist. And of course, he comes from a commercial background uh, and it and shows. And he's very good at capturing moments. Overall narratives is where I have a problem with his work. But, but when it comes to, to capturing moments and, and some of the, the imagery of, of, of Smallville in particular is, is absolutely lush, reminds me of Terrence Mann in, in many ways. But it started as down the road, uh, Superman versus Batman, Dawn of Justice kind of came along to sort of paper over some of the cracks of that film and address some of the, the issues and themes. So it had a direct con- continuation. And I think you and I said at the time, we wanted to see a follow-up to Man of Steel, see more about Superman than an introduction to Batman. But this is the film that we've got.
1: When it was announced, I remember when it was announced that it would be a Batman versus Superman film, and my instant cynical response was like, oh, so Man of Steel didn't succeed as much as you hoped, and so you need to shoehorn DC's most popular big screen outing character, Batman, into it for no reason at all. And what we ended up getting was a film that tried to do too much in one go. It tried to introduce everything. It tried to set up Justice League. It tried to introduce the Death of Superman story arc. It tried to do Batman battling Superman because obviously someone somewhere had read The Dark Knight Returns graphic novel and gone, wow, that would look good on film. And again, you had a film which has moments. It has some great imagery, some beautiful visuals, but doesn't quite have a soul to it. Often when I said I wasn't a fan of Batman versus Superman, I'd get the retort that I need to see the Ultimate Edition, as it makes more sense. But the story wasn't actually that hard to follow. That wasn't any of the issues that I had with it. And I've now seen the Batman vs Superman Ultimate Edition, and it doesn't really add anything more to it. It just makes the expositional moments more contrived and forces the story along. For the people at the back of the class who weren't paying attention... That's all that the Ultimate Edition does is it fills in the gaps for the people who can't follow a story. But I could, and that wasn't the issue.
0: I remember seeing it and felt it was unnecessarily convoluted. I thought it had some unnecessary additions. It had a few key points which I really liked. I thought Affleck was a great choice to play Bruce Wayne and Batman.
1: Oh, definitely. Uh,
0: the introduction of Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman has become the heart of the DC uh, universe for me, uh, and it was simply the best thing in it. Uh, I quite like Jesse Eisenberg's take on Lex Luthor, but incredibly underused, and it, it always felt as though they didn't know what they wanted to do with the character. I like the idea that he's uh, a, a kind of a young Silicon Valley type as opposed to the, the Lex Luthor that we've seen before, and I thought it was an interesting take. But it felt convoluted, it felt unnecessary, and we can't, unfortunately, Talk about it without, again, one of the worst pieces of writing, which is the Martha sequence, which hangs in the air every time you see it and created a thousand memes. But it's silly. No one ever refers to their mom by their first name. It, it just happens.
1: This is one of the moments that whenever you criticise it, you can guarantee online someone will jump on you yeah, and say that you didn't understand it. That you've got, you've got to be some kind of genius, apparently, to understand this scene. No, no, no. I get what he was going for. I get he wanted to have Batmans in a monologue drawing the parallels between what superman's love for his family is and what his loss of his family were and the name was the one which sparks it the name is the one which makes his memories go oh my this is maybe an alien but he, he loves his mother as well
0: and it gave him a connection i thought it was quite an idea we've never we've never dealt with that
1: it's so ham-fistedly inserted and it doesn't make sense and it comes at the end of us a, a fight sequence that was contrived in the origin of itself why i, I said this from day one superman when he lands face-to-face with Batman, why does he dither just going, we don't have to fight, and then just not continuing? Why doesn't he just say, Lex has been manipulating us, and he's kidnapped my mother, and he's holding a ransom? That would have stopped the fight. There's no reason that fight, that fight exists simply because the script insisted it exists. It has no reason to take place. And again, there's comic book moments relating to it that, showed that there was a clear misunderstanding of the similar moments in the comic books that it's ripped the sections from. It's a film that lends from so many comic book stories, but clearly doesn't understand the context that those comic book stories use those moments. But you said Batman, Ben Affleck, great casting. And boy, he was not only just great casting, but that was a great Batman. The moments of Batman were pure. They were the best moments that we've seen of Batman on screen in short little sections. The Warehouse Takedown is pure comic book action and so athletic. This is one, as much as I've loved the Batman films through the years, the one criticism that I've always got is that why does he always stand still when he's fighting? Why does he not actually jump around like he's supposed to and bounce off walls? And we finally got to see that. We finally got to see him hiding up in corners, like in the darkness, so that no one could see him. We got to see all the elements of the character that we've not seen before. And I would have loved to have just had a Batman film. I didn't need to have a forced Batman versus Superman.
0: I, I totally agree. And that was the first time, you're right, that we saw Batman be this 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 creature of the night, not just the uh, the Dark Knight detective. Though the film did okay, it performed under expectation. It received mostly negative reviews from critics for its tone, screenplay, pacing. Though it did, and this is something we agree with, Game praise for its visual style and um, we kind of missed out henry cavill on that because henry cavill kind of at this point established himself as, as a great superman despite the material he was working with his charm came to the forefront his relationship with lois was expanded upon it's a shame it's such a convoluted mess of a film
1: the final act of batman vs superman as well with the introduction of doomsday that's the point at which even the visuals start to suffer And the rendering of Doomsday looks, it looks like 2004 Harry Potter kind of rendering. And it makes the whole, what should be a climatic battle with three of the Justice League teaming up for the first time. It just ends up being a CGI mess. Didn't need to be in there. Maybe this story could have been two films and it could have took its time building up to this moment. It's a film, like we've said, of moments. That's about it.
0: So if we skip Joss Whedon's Justice League, which we will mention as part of, of talking about the Snyder Cut, along comes this week, Zack Snyder's ultimate cut of the Justice League. So begins the end for
1: Darkseid. I've never seen a being as strong. Maybe one. It's bad.
0: I spent a lot of time trying to divide us. I made a promise to him on his grave. I need to bring us together. There are enemies coming from far away. They serve an old power.
1: This world is divided. No protectors here. No lanterns. No kryptonium. It will fall in his name. I have turned worlds to dust. All of existence shall be mine.
0: so Zack Snyder's director's cut Justice League clocks in at a whopping 4 hours and 2 minutes and if you're really interested in an extra 40 seconds it's a greatly extended cut which for many represents uh, Snyder's unique vision for his troubled DC universe team-up of a film born of a vocal fan campaign uh, ag- aggressive at times vocal fan campaign I watched it going into it having disliked immensely the theatrical release as I know you did Uh, I didn't watch it in one sitting. I used the chapters to break it up. That was less about the film and more about me. I was never bored. I liked it and enjoyed it uh, a a great deal. I think it's the best for me out of uh, Snyder's take on his, uh, his excursion into the DC universe. But there's a lot of faults with it. But ultimately, I have to say, before we say anything else, I did have a good time watching Uh, an okay movie
1: my impression that yes it's better than the 2017 release in fact if you look at my ratings on Letterboxd it's twice as good because it got two stars instead of one Uh, it's still a problematic film and it creates a few new problems for itself the story is not significantly different you could read out the synopsis for the Joss Whedon release and it would match this one perfectly it's still a bad guy Steppenwolf is collecting the mother boxes to combine together to destroy Earth and turn it into a dark future. It's still there, and the fans who've been claiming that Joss reshot eighty percent of the film, I, I think that that was a bit of an exaggeration. I'd suspect there's at least sixty percent of the old cut, just filtered differently or edited differently to give different kind of approach to it. The character of Cyborg is expanded, but doesn't actually change the story by doing so. And for me, I'm, I have to go on record here to say that I've never liked the character of Cyborg anyway.
0: He's always been a bit dull in the comics. I always preferred him when he was in the Teen Titans, never quite liked his jump into the Justice League. It felt like tokenism. Um, yeah, and I kind of agree with you. He's, he's Emotionally, yes, it's the heart of the film and, and, Those extended scenes did operate, but it's a bit like you. It's not a character that I particularly like.
1: He's an undefined power. And you get this, like you you got this in the Captain Marvel film for for Marvel a couple of years ago, that her powers were not defined so she could do anything. And that made me go, eh, if I can't tell what your weakness is, I'm not that caring. Cyborg, literally, whatever he wants, his body seems to manually adjust to give him it. And also there's a moment in the film where his automated defense system reacts to the threat of Superman. Yet that same automated, automated defense system doesn't react to any other threats for the whole lot of the film. And it's like, you put that in there for no reason, and now you've created a problem because that's not how you work. One character that did benefit from this cut, though, one character that I got a lot of love for and I cannot wait to see going forwards, The Flash.
0: No, I agree. I loved the little sequence uh, where we got to see a bit of backstory. I mean, all the the uh, major principals all got a backstory. Some a little bit more than we'd seen before, some completely brand new sequences.
1: Uh, But yeah, the character of The Flash, when Joss Whedon did his reshoots, he'd inserted more comical moments for The Flash and he was a bit unsure of his powers and he was afraid and didn't want to get involved. And that diminished the character here he's a character who right from your very first vision of him with the car flipping over and him doing all that action he's confident in his abilities he knows what he's doing he's still jittery but that's his nature he's not afraid he's just perfectly skilled but doesn't know how to apply himself and the character i was not sold on Ezra Miller as the character but now man i am well and truly on board and i cannot wait for the flashpoint movie because this this gave him the credit that he needed that introduction scene I mean, I know it's, it's created loads of memes involving hot dogs online. But you know what? I love the little wry humour to that whole scene. I love the approach of it. An additional character who was added into the film is Martian Manhunter, who gets two scenes. And the first scene that he pops up creates a problem. There's a scene where Martha, Superman's Earth mother, and Lois are talking about the loss of him and what it meant. And then when Martha leaves the apartment, turns into Martian Manhunter to show, hey, it was Martian Manhunter all along. That diminishes the emotional impact of Superman's mum talking to Superman's love and both having their own sorrows. It's been claimed that the reason that John Jones as Martian Manhunter did that was he needed to get Lois to go to the scene where she would make him realise who he is. But she was already shown earlier on in the film to be going to visit the memorial pretty much on a daily basis anyway. So it wasn't needed and it just made it so that Martian Manhunter, who has all this power, pops up before all the events kick off and doesn't try to save the planet that he's actually living on.
0: Uh, I totally agree. It made absolutely zero sense to me. As you said, it undermined that, that relationship and that core of those two characters. Um, why didn't he put himself forward into the ring if he was so important that it was so important that Lois was a part of Superman's resurrection? Then why wasn't Manhunter part of that resurrection? And then pop up at the end to go, um, yeah, I'll join your club now. Uh, Now all the fighting's finished. It's it's almost a bit like me. (laughs) You know, I'll, I'll, I'll join the war, but I'll wait till it's done. Uh, To be honest, the one element that I liked in the Whedon cut was that Lois was Batman's secret weapon, and I thought that was a nice touch, and um, uh, it it kind of undervalued Lois. She was there by default rather than by design. She saw some aggro going off and and, and heads to the scene, so it makes absolutely no sense. I'll totally agree with you. It was cool to see Martian Manhunter, but that's why it was in, because it was cool rather than it served... Uh, a, a purpose to the story you mentioned right at the beginning of this how much of the film is familiar uh, and you're right, all the major plot points are there, you know, we get uh, Wonder Woman's introduction in London which is uh, which is in the, the original cut yes, I'll, I'll buy it it's a, it's a much longer uh, and darker take on that but it's still there, the introduction of um, Bruce Wayne meeting Aquaman is there uh, the introduction, and everybody was, went ballistic at the time thinking this was a Joss Whedon gag with the uh, what's your superpower, I'm rich. Seems it turns out it's in this film and, and started here because that was more or less exactly the same scene. So I, w- I was actually really surprised at how much of the plot was intact and how much uh, the beats of the film were pretty much the same. Yes, we got rid of the annoying Russian family, but the, the ending still takes place in, in, in Russia which I always thought was strange in the first version and, and and felt that must have been an addition because why would you put Aquaman so far away from the ocean? It still doesn't make sense to me. But all the other scenes were were just longer constructs of, of versions that we saw before. The main issue I have with the film and with the extended running time, yes, it was interesting to go and see the, the additional character scenes, but if you can't get additional character scenes in four hours, you're doing something terribly wrong, is there was a lack of threat all the way through it. One, Steppenwolf, who again looks better in this film than he did, and and less plasticine, even though there are some some poor, almost video game quality effects in there. Even though Steppenwolf was a a much better realised character, looked better, uh, and and had a purpose at least, is I never felt the Justice League characters were, were were at all threatened and, and seem to spend an awful long time talking about a sense of threat than, than this sort of ticking clock hmm. until the, the last mother box goes missing uh, uh, and, and is retrieved by Steppenwolf, then, then there's no threat. I've never felt they were in danger because you knew, especially when Superman comes back, that Superman is going to sort it all out.
1: I've seen this commented online um, over this past week that Superman is one of the biggest problems with the Justice League because... The Avengers, when the Avengers team up, they need to team up to beat a villain that they can't beat alone, whereas the Justice League team up to beat a villain that Superman can beat alone. And it's Superman is too powerful. Why do you need a Justice League if Superman's alive? So basically, this film, by having Superman come back to life and join the Justice League, he's basically disbanded the Justice League by the end of it because the the rest of them are useless. The the runtime of four hours is 23 minutes of slow motion. And about twenty minutes of coda at the end of scenes that aren't really important to the story. It's all future events that take place. It's like a okay, here's what you could have won kind of moment for Zack, and this is where he got the reshoots in, and this is where he got the Joker to be put in in another dark future in a scene where him and him and Batman have a brief conversation that feels really, really poorly written, and includes crass humor and swearing in the same way that TV shows such as Spartacus inserted just in the an attempt to try to be all mature and adult. It's a 13-year-old child's idea of what an adult film would do by ham-fistedly inserting F-bombs wherever it can that don't actually feel genuine.
0: I, I agree, I agree. I thought the Coda, uh, the, the, the film ended for me when uh, Henry Cavill Clark Kent opened his shirt and we see the S logo. That's where the film finished. The the Coda was unnecessary, especially in light of that we're not going to see any kind of a follow up for it. And of course, the Coda built up the Darkseid character, which um, I remember Darkseid as being a god from the new gods and uh, was a a big fan of Kirby's fourth world series. However, uh, I have a problem with with Darkseid in it. Uh, He comes across as kind of an intergalactic uh, Genghis Khan, I thought, rather than than a, a new god. Uh, and it was shown that he could be defeated quite easily uh, in the uh, much expanded flashback sequence to his first attempted invasion of the Earth. And, and the fact that he forgot that he'd, he'd basically invaded this planet once before and, and left it for hundreds of hundreds of years before, before coming back. Uh, and also why when the transportation, the boom tube was open, he had the army at the ready. Uh, why didn't he just attack? there and then, I, I, there were just too many bits that that really, really didn't add up to it. So it was clear that Snyder wasn't calling the shots on Justice League's 2017 inept film. There were so many mistakes in it. But what is interesting is he's had this opportunity and, and, and a, quite a, a unique opportunity to go back and, and readdress the film that he wanted to make. And this is clearly Zack Snyder's vision. And the upshot finally feels that it's a cohesive work from a, a, a very single filmmaking uh, team, rather than this sort of shambling monstrosity that, that we got last time, which was a combination of, of visions. It's a triumph. It's a triumph for Zack Snyder. And, you know, congratulations to him. This doesn't happen very often where a filmmaker gets to go back and complete a piece of work that they intended and wanted to make. Uh, it's a triumph for the fans who stuck by it, um, even though everybody had written it off, including us, and managed to turn out a, a, a huge gargantuan epic of a film and it is epic even if you're not going to sit through it in its whole uh, four hour running time you can watch it as chapters and, and see it as something quite quite unique it's confused it's still messy it has some terrible dialogue and it's strangely shot in a four by three aspect ratio which the fans have been saying yes that's because it's for IMAX but when this film isn't getting an IMAX release and getting a, a, a home cinema release, it makes absolutely no lick of sense to me. Uh, and, and to some extent, uh, sort of stunts the visuals of it, uh, in my opinion. It doesn't change my mind of, of Zack Snyder. I think he's uh, uh, he's got a unique vision. And uh, as, as moments go, he knows how to portray a great moment. But the narrative lapses uh, on it are just, are just too frustrating. And, and at times... Uh, weaken what could be a classic film. You could have lost 40 minutes out of this four-hour cut and created a better film, but that's not what yeah. the fans wanted. They wanted, they wanted the, their cake and they wanted to eat it. So now it's time for our review. And of course, it is this week's biggest blockbusters. Yes, The Flash, after many years of waiting, finally hits theatres. But if there's only one multiverse blockbuster you should watch this weekend, Is it going to be Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse or DC's The Flash? Hi. Sorry if this sounds weird, but are you actively eating that candy bar? Maybe you could throw it to me. I need you here now. Hi, Bruce. Yes, I'm coming. Bruce, I discovered that I can travel in time. And in doing so, I destroyed the timeline. love you, Batman. I love you too. But I will fix it. What's now? I got you. Why did you help me? Because you needed help.
1: I will help you fight like, love.
0: You wanna get nuts? Let's get nuts.
1: Wait, he's Batman?
0: This world must die. If you went back and changed the past...
1: Are you ready? Ready. You changed the future.
0: No matter what we do... We're not gonna be able to fix this.
1: No! Nobody died!
0: Let's go. Yeah, we've been waiting for this for some time. Directed by Andy Muschietti, he of IT fame, tells the story of Barry Allen, played by Ezra Miller, who is desperate to save his murdered mother and clear the name of his father. The Scarlet Speedster, The Flash, travels back in time, but instead he manages to trigger a chain of events that sees him not only running around with a younger, alternate version of himself, but also a very different Batman. While trying to save the timeline and ultimately the multiverse. Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav said The Flash is the greatest superhero movie that he's ever seen. Tom Cruise said this was marvellous but is this the masterpiece that we've been promised or is, it, or is it a bit of a disaster?
1: There is a masterpiece within here but it's flawed in a way that makes it not quite achieve it. There's something great in it and I had a riot watching it. We both really enjoy it we spoke at the end of it that we both had fun with it and i think we both had kind of similar issues there was one of the issues that you have with it which you can get to in a bit which i didn't have as much of an issue with but we definitely both had an issue with the cgi
0: yeah i mean these are some of the worst visual effects i think i've seen on the big screen for some time i think i described it as it looked like cutscenes from a playstation 3 game yeah it's disturbingly bad yeah, and it really impacted on the quality of the film. Now, I think Andy Moschetti has done his absolute best with this. We know that it's been recut. Even the version that was previewed recently is a different version of the movie that we saw. I think Christina Hodgson's script has gone through so many reshoots that the way the story was originally intended must have changed so many times. But what it does deliver are some fantastic action scenes, Mm. a great portrayal and very different portrayal of Barry Allen, as opposed to Gustin's portrayal of the Flash on the TV show, and is generally a lot of fun, but I do have problems.
1: The great action, I mean, the the film pretty much kicks straight into top gear with a marvellously choreographed and designed action sequence when Flash is assisting Batman, Ben Affleck's Batman in this case, taking down some criminals who've stolen some toxin from a laboratory. But it's also put a hospital at jeopardy, which is starting to collapse. And the Flash is doing the rescue attempt. And it's a greatly conceived scene. And you can, you know, the thrill is there. But the CGI damages the scene, especially what should be a perilous moment of loads of babies falling. And he's trying to save each one of them, whilst also running out of energy to manipulate the speed force and needing to refuel himself at the same time. And it should have tension, but the CGI jars that little bit too much. I mean, these babies, even seasoned Silent Hill players will be freaked out by the CGI designs of these babies. They are creepy. And that kind of damages that opening moment, not too much. I mean, it's still thrilling. It's still got some light humor in there. It's still one of those wonderful uses. We saw it in the X-Men films when they did uh, the slowing down of time. And it's similar to that where he's manipulating little things bit by bit to get everything into place. Great sequence let down by CGI. But then you get to the actual chase on the road with Batman, and that is stunning. That's beautiful. And that kind of compensates for the bad CGI. And then throughout the film, there's loads of moments where the CGI is really terrible, but then it's followed by something brilliant. And even on the concept of how he goes backwards in time, which in the comics, the the, the cosmic treadmill, it would have been adapt yeah. concept to bring to the screen we've seen it on the tv series kind of works in there because they've got that approach but here they do something kind of unique and concept wise kind of like gladiatorial arena setup in time where the layers of time are folding back as the like in in a stadium format while he's in a bubble in the middle is a beautiful concept but again the cgi makes you go oh that's not quite worked
0: yeah there's the special effects on this um i can only put down to the fact that the film was probably being recut, restylized, and they ran out of time on the effects work because you've got some big effects houses working on it. Weta, for instance, is working on this. Mm. I think it comes down to time. Uh, I think it comes down to the fact that it was rushed towards the end. We know it's gone through a massive post-production process because of uh, James Gunn. Taking over the running of the DC Universe.
1: There's loads of films over recent years that the CGI has let it down. The Marvel films in particular have looked particularly shocking. But I've noticed a, a worrying trend in the end credits where you're getting 20 to 28 different effects studios working on one film. And I'm wondering whether it's the lack of cohesion between so many different variables that is causing them to come out like this, or is it that the other effect studios are then trying to tamper with someone else's work to change it in a different direction? The less number of effect studios, the better the film turns out. Yeah, I think that this is another example, because the end credits when they were running, I commented to you, it's like, how many effect studios? Yeah. And I think this is this is where the issue is probably coming from. I know you had another issue with the film. It's one that I didn't have as much issue with. And for you, it was the humour was overdone. Yeah.
0: I found the humor to be grating in the same way that I found the humor to be grating in Thor, Love and Thunder. Everything was turned up to number 11. I don't mind quips. I don't mind an underlying humor. Marvel's proved that. And I don't mind the fact that the flash is light. It should be light. Yes, it does go dark towards the end. But. The, the humor really threw, threw me out. So as you probably know, this iteration of The Flash is based on DC's Flashpoint concept. And it's pretty much a similar kind of idea, clearly watered down from, from the book and less complex than the book, down to the simplicity. Barry's mission is to save his mom. Uh, and by going back in time, he meets a younger version of himself, who I just found incredibly annoying, again played by Ezra Miller. What was, what was good about it is that Ezra Miller clearly played two very, very different characters. Mm. And that was pretty good because after a while, you, you certainly accept that there are two very different Barry Allens on screen interacting with each other.
1: Yeah, at no point did I feel that, did I feel that there was not two different Ezra Millers on screen. And they captured different aspects of the character. You've got the Flash, Barry Allen, whose mother had died who still has that nervousness and awkwardness and jokey nature, but that's kind of covering up his internal sorrow. And it's played through well. And then you've got the one whose mother never died, and his jokey nature is a flippancy and a, whoa, yeah, I can do anything kind of approach. And playing them both against each other works a treat. And the annoyance of the jokey nature is even referenced between the characters when older Barry, actually comments is like this is how i come across to other people this is why other people are are, like annoyed by me and so it knows that he he does come across as annoying at times and i think that kind of works but we've had our gripes but we both had fun with this film and i think where it works is in the story because it is a very emotionally heartfelt central core aspect of character development story that has all these effects and these action sequences just around what's actually happening, which is the personal journey of Barry Allen trying to save his mother's life and then realising that he has to take responsibility for what would happen to everyone else if she stays alive. And it's wonderfully portrayed. Miller is absolutely on fire
0: yeah great screen presence i think when the script gets darker and the drama gets more serious i think that's when i kicked in um Mm. the younger flash the sort of hippie stoner giggling flash sort of started to grow up and i became more more invested into it not that at any point i wasn't entertained but my investment changed on that i guess we can't talk about this without mentioning, of course, the bat in the room, sorry, the elephant in the room. Um, the return <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> of Batman as played by Michael Keaton. Now for me, just to get it out of the way, Michael Keaton is my Batman. He is the, the against all odds, when, when Keaton was mentioned he was playing Batman, the fans went crazy but as soon as uh, they saw him on screen and that translation of, you know, he invented the bat voice. He played a very different Bruce Wayne. He is my Batman. I love the bat costume. I I love the style of the, the Burton movies. Faults and all. And and it was great for a guy who's 71 to step back into this role and brings maturity to it, but also brings everything we remember about his portrayal back to that character.
1: Yeah, it was so effortless in how he just fell back into the character. It was as though he'd never been away. From an almost jokey introduction, but showcased like what Batman would still be able to fight like as an OAP to actually once he's got that costume on and he's playing with those gadgets, man, he's fantastic. And what could have been just a throwaway cameo thing and not used actually becomes quite integral to the whole film. This Batman isn't just shoehorned in for fan service. This Batman is part of the actual story. This Batman is necessary for the story and really brings some weight to the whole proceedings let's also talk about supergirl played by sasha cow who isn't just a female version of superman this is a tortured a troubled a victim character with powers who's finally getting a chance to show her powers and she is torn on whether she needs to help humanity or not because of how she's been treated by humanity and Sasha kal really carries it completely
0: I, I, I totally agree I thought she brought a brooding quality to the, a Kryptonian that we'd not seen before it's a shame we didn't get to see more of her and to be honest it, it's a big shame we didn't get to see her and Keaton have scenes together because Ooh. basically she's on the periphery and I and I kind of feel her role had been watered down throughout the changes and there was there's probably a lot more that we could have seen uh, about her and about her role in the uh, in the new dcu and apparently she was supposed to go on and play supergirl in other movies now clearly that's gone now james gunn's involved but i i thought she was great mm-hmm. i just wanted to see more of her i wanted her to do more and i think that was a definitely a case of she was cut down and her character hand and her role was watered down Uh, i thought just while i'm on rolls i thought that michael shannon basically phoned it in yeah i wasn't even sure which bits were actually michael shannon or which bits were clips from uh, man of steel Uh, he basically turned up for a day's worth of work and they CGI'd him and he he kind of the whole Zod thing felt a bit flat. I think I'd be more interested about uh, maybe seeing uh, the reverse Flash or something like that seeing a Flash villain. It made sense to the story but he, he didn't really bring much to it.
1: No. And he said in recent interviews that it was just a job to him and he didn't really enjoy reprising the role as much as he did enjoy playing the role when he did it in Man of Steel. There was nothing to him. It was nothing more than a head Can't go without mentioning Ben Affleck as well. Who yes. this is Ben Affleck's final outing as Batman. And in that open sequence, we got get to see a tease of what we could have had had the ball not been fumbled so spectacularly bad over the previous films. Because Affleck, now that he's got like the almost blue cape as well, it's looking perfect, yeah. Batman. And he's on the Bat bike and he's racing along and it is the Batman that we could have had. It's a shame because yeah, Ben totally Affleck agree. could have been absolutely brilliant had he had a Batman franchise to go with. And we'll never get to see that play out because he stepped away completely from the role after this film but you know what the fact that we've got it now i'm happy with if we never see sasha cal again as supergirl you know what at least we've got a chance to see her here if we never see michael keaton again as batman you know what we got to see him put a little final touch onto that character he played all those decades ago. This is a great little film that has these fan-pleasing cameo moments that are more than cameos. They add weight and gravitas to the whole proceedings and they are central to the core concept of what The Flash is. There's plenty of other surprises which we're not gonna spoil.
0: There were some proper proper surprises because I I went in <laughs> not knowing anything.
1: You will laugh, you will cry, you will point at the screen. And you'll have your non-geek friends going, what are you so excited about? And you will spend half an hour explaining to them everything that you've just seen. So ultimately... Two thumbs fresh. It's a summer blockbuster. For all its failings... And for all its successes, it's a perfect summer blockbuster. The CGI is the weakest bit and does damage the film, but it doesn't damage it too much because everything else lifts it back up.
0: Uh, I'm going to go with that. I'm going to say far from the greatest superhero movie ever made, but it's certainly not the worst. It's a good time. I enjoyed it with a sense of joy to it i had a sense of joy i i was involved in the story yes the script is a little bit messy but i don't put that down to the filmmaker uh, the humor got on my nerves for a lot of it and there's the appalling visual effects made the film feel rushed and messy but i still walked out with a silly smile on my face and had a good time i don't think though we will see ezra miller return but for this film a bit like what andy said think about what we could have had You can find The Flash across all cinemas right now. Anything coming up over the next week or so, Andy?
1: The only thing coming up at the cinemas that I've got my desperate eye on is Asteroid City. (laughs) When we return next week, we will talk about Asteroid City and I'll no doubt gush. Ridiculously about my love of Wes Anderson. I'll let you because I'll be gushing as well.
0: So that's it for this very special episode of The Film File. Regular programming will be restored next week in another part of The Multiverse. This was an award winning episode.
1: Don't forget, you can get in touch with us podcast at filmfile.uk or look for us Film File filmfile.uk on all social media platforms.
0: And remember, kids, don't stand near chemicals where there's a lightning storm.